there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. Hi everyone, this is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another Books with Hooks. But this isn't just a regular Books with Hooks. You will have noticed that we have been experimenting with having authors during our interview segment critique query letters because besides agents, who better to have look at your work than other authors who've been exactly where you are now, who have struggled to get published and who've overcome the obstacles that you are currently faced with. And so in order to streamline the podcast, what we are now doing from today is we're inviting authors onto our segment and they will critique query letters alongside Carly and Cece. And we're also trying to get to the point where our episodes are a standard length because we've heard your complaints and many of you are like, I just want to know that I can listen to this episode while on the way to pick up my child from X, Y, and Z. But then some episodes are an hour and a half. So this is our new format. Let us know what you think going forward. And for those of you who are still wanting to submit to Books with Hooks, there's a chance an author will look at your submission. All right, I'm handing over now to Carly to welcome our author today. All right, I am delighted to be entering into this new format with a client of mine. And you've heard me talk about her on my social media. You have heard me talk about her on the podcast. If you are on a webinar of mine, you have heard me talk about her. I am, I've been so excited about this book and so excited to continue to spread the word about my client, Mai. Mai Nguyen is a National Magazine Award-nominated journalist and copywriter who has written for Wired, the Washington Post, the Toronto Star, and several major brands. Raised in Halifax, Nova Scotia, she now lives in Toronto. Sunshine Nails is her debut novel. Visit her at mynwin.ca. Welcome to the podcast, Mai. I'm so happy to be on. This podcast is, I think, the sole reason why I found you, Carly, and why I was able to get my book sold. So I have to attribute the podcast to all my success so far. And just to give everyone the lowdown about my book, it's coming out July 4th. It's about a Vietnamese Canadian family that runs a nail salon in Toronto, and their nail salon is under threat of being shut down. So the family sort of gets into a lot of debauchery in order to get their nail salon from shutting down and so yeah happy to be on this podcast all right well we will get into all of the great stuff about the book and first i think we are going to read a query letter dear carly cc and bianca 
I love hearing your insights on the podcast and would be honored if you selected my query to read on the podcast, as I know your wise words would certainly help me to improve my chances for snagging an agent's attention. Met My Match, an 88,000 word YA romantic contemporary fantasy, is a modern Eros and Psyche retelling. It combines the girl next door with a secret supernatural of How to Date a Superhero and Not Die Trying by Christina Fernandez with both real and fantasy realms like Not Your Average Hot Guy by Gwen a bond and has the slow burn chemistry of the charmed list by julia abe 17 year old vivian remes has never had a relationship longer than the rom-com marathons she binges every weekend yet without her mother alive to make new family traditions she's stuck fulfilling her family's sweetheart tradition of attending prom with her true love too bad she doesn't even have a date Then she discovers her friend Archie is more than just annoying and annoyingly gorgeous. As a devious winged love god, he amuses himself by using magical arrows to secretly play matchmaker. But when he asks for romance help, he decides to wreck her dating life. Every guy he shoots with his magic arrows will court her, but only for one week. Vivian doesn't want manipulated, fleeting passion. She wants a real relationship that won't fade. To stop his meddling, she impulsively bets she can find and keep her prom date without his interference. She loses the bet and gets dumped a week before the dance, so Archie offers to be her prom plus one. Now Vivian must decide whether to risk a temporary romance with Archie to fulfill the family tradition she cares about most, or break that tradition to protect herself from enchanted love or worse, real heartache. When I'm not writing young adult and middle grade fiction, I'm a freelance photographer, expat relocation consultant, and mother to four children. If there's any time left in my day, I like to read and run rarely at the same time. Thank you for your consideration. Awesome, Carly. Thank you. Will you tell us what the word count there was and your take on that? So this one came in at 343. I think, honestly, this was a very well-written query letter. I'm, I actually, like, I'm struggling a little bit to find things where I'm like, okay, this could, you know, this could be improved. This could be improved. I think the actual word count is exactly the right size. We have our comps. We have our word count. We have our genre. We have everything we need here. I think it's a little bit on the long side word count wise. Again, if I have to be picky about things, I think it is a fantasy. So I know that there is world building involved. But if we could get it a bit closer to 80, I think that would fit a little bit neater kind of inside a a YA category space. I think that would be a benefit to this project as a whole. I really like that the title is kind of cutesy, you know, met my match. There is obviously this whole sub themes going on about the arrows and psyche retelling. So it all it's all very cute and tidy and neat, right? And it's like all fitting into this world that we've set up. I think the stakes do inherently feel a little bit low. This isn't a kind of a contemporary fantasy where worlds are colliding and things like that. It it is kind of a, there is a lot of world building, I assume that's going to happen, but the stakes are very romance focus, which, which keeps them a bit low. So I think for exactly what it's going for, I think, honestly, I think this really hits the mark. Thank you, Carly. Okay. Can you give us an overview of what was in those opening pages? So we meet our main character when she is working at the flower shop that is mentioned in the query letter. So she's working at the flower shop. We're kind of understand from the beginning, a lot of what's covered in the query letter, which is she's not able to find a lot of success in her romantic life. It's very much focused on that from page one. We have her working at the flower shop, but she is the one actually handling the flowers. There are other people that do the driving. And so this is when she meets Archie and another friend. They are the ones who are going to go off and do the driving. Right away, she's very intrigued by Archie. There's some physical kind of comedy where she stumbles over something. She's And then kind of like falls into him and trips into them, kind of bonks him. And he kind of is quite off put by her. He doesn't remember her name. He calls her by another name. And he's really not sure what to make of her. And the other male friend that is with our Archie, who is also a driver, he kind of right off the bat is like, he has a girlfriend, like back off kind of thing. And and kind of puts her in her place. So there's a little bit of kind of figuring out um, where everybody is territorially and figuring out what everybody's jobs are, what everybody's roles are. And that is where we end. Thank you, Carly. I think our British listeners now are all falling over themselves laughing because bunk in British slang means something very different (laughs) to what it means in the US. So, yes, Yes, these teens are not bonking. These (laughs) teens are just falling into each other with their elbows, (laughs) literal elbows, not metaphorical elbows. Love it. Love it. Uh, British British listeners will be glad to give you a, a bit of a giggle. Okay, so Carly, what was your take on those opening pages? Yeah. So I want to talk about first lines a little bit. So the first line of this project is, 
if my love life wasn't so tragic, it would almost be comical. And I thought that was a really, I thought that was a really great first line. So I want to, um, I want to bring it back to Mai's novel, Sunshine Nails, and talk about um, our first line in that book. So the first line of Sunshine Nails is in Debbie's point of view, and it goes like this. If Debbie Tran could go back in time, she would stop herself from reading that damn Yelp review. And I love this first line because it tells us so much about Debbie. It starts uh, a domino effect of everything that's to come, what she's obsessed with, which is work. And it, to me, it's just like the perfect first line to encompass so much. And, and Mai, I wanted to ask you about your inception and creation of this first line. Has it Was the first line always this line or did you go through many first lines to get here? I must have rewrote that first sentence a million times and in different variations, but it was always in the vein of, darn, I wish I didn't read that Yelp review. That first chapter was always going to be about Debbie opening up her business's Yelp page and finding out that they just got a really horrendous one-star review. And I really wanted to capture that moment where Debbie's like, ah, crap, what is this review? And so I must have tweaked that line just... um, I must have tweaked it several times, but it was always going to be about that Yelp review. But yeah, uh, I'm glad you liked it because it took a long time to get there. As as great first lines should, right? Like, I, there's very few first lines that obviously remain, but but I lo- I just love, as I said, everything that it, it sets us up for. So, um, that is a great a great first line. All right, so now back to um our novel Met My Match. So this project, I think, what I was most most curious about was was really the world building you know because I think like a teen romance we kind of know what a teen romance is two teens figuring out if they're gonna fall in love right um that is you know very standard in terms of teen romance and so I think what is unique about this project and where the hook is is really the world building and I wasn't really sure how much you know magic was involved and I didn't really feel like the world building itself was fully coming through the way that I wanted it to so I think that's kind of my main note here because as I said I feel like it checks so many boxes in terms of genre expectations of YA romance but the fantasy element I really wanted to know what is fantastical about it I wasn't even sure physically like if they were magical um and 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 that was kind of something that was that was missing um, on the page for me so that was that was a big element um that I think we could work on thanks Carly yeah you know what world building is incredibly incredibly tough because in those opening pages you want it to be so organic it needs to be built in very organically you don't want to have five paragraphs that just explain the world so for those of you who are doing world building in those opening pages that's where you're going to spend the most amount of time to bring this world to life in a way that is part of the action part of the characterization part of the plot so something to spend time on and I want to throw to mine now, I want to talk about the world building in Sunshine Nails. So a couple of things we need to cover to kind of get to that point, which is I want you to tell the readers a little bit about your personal history with this subject matter. So a lot of times writers don't really know how to tell us this book is loosely inspired by my life. But obviously, this is something that you know intimately, which really shaped your novel in the world that you ultimately created. So tell us maybe a little bit about that backstory. So my parents own a nail salon in Halifax, Nova Scotia, and they've been running this salon for about 25 years now. So ever since I was a kid, I spent a ton of time at their nail salon after school, doing homework, just hanging out on the weekends. And when I got old enough, they let me do some odd jobs around the nail salon. I clean up the towels, sweep up all the nail clippings, make sure all the nail polish bottles were lined up perfectly. And so I got to be privy to a lot of Everything that goes on at the nail salon from the amazing customers that we got to some of the wackier customers we got um, to all the business drama that goes down to in the nail salon. So fortunately, I didn't have to do too much, too much research on this world because it was something I lived and experienced myself. And so I yeah, use all of my experiences and memories to encapsulate what it's like to be in a very busy bustling nail salon, what the characters are like there, and sort of all the struggles and drama that come along with running a nail salon. 
And we get so many pitches from debut novelists on this podcast, and we have so many um, aspiring debut novelists uh, that listen to the podcast. And one of the things I wanted to wanted to talk about was it's very rare for debut novelists to really get their characters into hot, scalding water. And one of the things I love about this book is that you absolutely go for the jugular, and we get the sense that these characters are going to do whatever it takes. So as a debut novelist, as a writer out of the gate, like how did you know that you really wanted to get these characters in hot water? Oh, I really wanted to mess up my characters. <laughs> I don't know why. Maybe I just wanted to see them struggle. I actually had one beta reader tell me, like, I think maybe you're throwing too many tomatoes at them. So there was actually like one big tomato, one big uh, plot twist that was in the book that I eventually removed because most of the readers I had that took a look at the manuscript just said, okay, that's too much. You're just you're just making them suffer for no reason. And so I think I think that just adds to the drama of of the book. This is set in a contemporary Toronto. And so I feel like the struggles and stakes need to just be a little bit more out there because they do live a pretty comfortable life. They live a middle-class life in Toronto. Life is going pretty well. And so I need to just throw them a little bit more conflict. And so, yeah, I trust that my characters can handle it. And so far, they're they're okay. <laughs> I love that. We absolutely must torture our characters. It's like, as authors, we sit there diabolically going, it, it is awesome. My something I want to ask you is the problem sometimes when people write something that is similar to their personal experience is that they're too tempted to stay really close to that experience because it feels like real life. And so they're very reluctant to move away from that. Were there instances in the book where you took complete sort of artistic license and changed things completely in terms of how they might be in real life beyond what you just said in terms of upping the stakes and making things a bit more elevated for them in that way? Or did you stay quite close to how things are in, in reality? I actually found it quite easy to stay further away from reality. I use my lived experience just to set the tone and the backdrop. But in terms of the plot devices and the a climax and the events that happen in the book, I just went wild with that because that's not things, fortunately, that haven't happened to my family's nail salon. Things like blackmail and sabotage and gambling and DUIs, like those aren't in my family's reality. And so it was a lot more fun and easier to just go with it and sort of step outside the reality that I lived. I love that. I love that because I see a lot of manuscripts that I get that I help evaluate that are very clearly based on real life. And when I make suggestions in terms of can't this happen or can't this happen, authors are very reluctant. And then I have to remind them that they're not writing a memoir, that with fiction, you can do all of these, these different things. The question I always want to ask everybody, I'm just obsessed with ambition. I'm obsessed with ambition about how it shows up on the page and I will ambitiously uh, weave my question in. So I feel like everybody in this book is so super passionate, right? So everybody in your book is passionate, but not everybody has ambition. And so I'm curious about what you were trying to say about hard work, success, like whether it all pays off and, and whether you had a theme you wanted to get across there. Yeah, my all of the characters in my book have their own motivations, some are more ambitious than others. Some are willing to push the limits further than others. And I think I just wanted to show that work can mean very many different things to different people. Some people will die for their job. Some people are not willing to lift that much of a finger to keep their livelihood. And I think it's a, a cultural and generational difference too. You see Debbie and Phil, who are the mom and dad, they live and die by their nail salon. They'll do anything to keep it alive because it's sort of what has kept them thriving in Canada, in this new country they've moved to. It's like, it's it's signified their identity for so long, whereas their children are a little bit more ambivalent about their careers and their jobs. They're a little bit more dissatisfied with it, even though on the surface, they get good benefits, they get good pay, they get treated really well. They're not having to bend over backwards and scrub people's feet. They're doing pretty white collar jobs. And so, but the dissatisfaction there is something that the two generations, I think, really butt heads against. The children don't understand why the parents are suffering so much for their job and the parents don't understand why they're not more grateful for what they have. And so that that's sort of like where I wanted to 
draw the line between how ambition can differ between different characters. Amazing, Mai. Thank you. All right, so now we're going to ask Mai to read her query letter for us. Okay. Dear Carly, Cece, and Bianca, I so appreciated all your comments on the query letter and opening pages of my first book, which I've set aside, at least for now, that I'm back with a new novel and another query. This time, I've decided to see what I need to fix before I send it off into the wild blue. The query letter below is 313 words. Add another 20 or so for personalization. Please consider the 83,000 word When They Were Pretty, literary fiction with elements of family saga. Set in near contemporary California with World War II London as an early backdrop, the book is told from both Gemma's first person and third person POVs. The novel will appeal to book club readers seeking family stories with a mature protagonist as seen in My Name is Lucy Barton and The Dutch House, as well as The Notebook with its depiction of memory loss and to readers interested in the exploration of sexual secrets and defiance of gender norms. Gemma, 50 years old and single, has always yearned to live the dramatic, glamorous love story exemplified by her British parents, a munitions factory girl and World War II British Army captain. Gemma's own story is dominated by her past with Bill, an older married man who revealed himself as a closeted crossdresser, shocking Gemma and causing her to end the relationship. Now, 20 years later, Gemma's father has died and her mother is confined to an Alzheimer's care unit. During her Sunday visits, Gemma strikes up a friendship with a man visiting his own father. As the two grow closer, processing their parents' decline together, a new secret emerges. She must decide whether to embrace her own imperfect life or cling to the myth she's believed in since childhood. My writing has appeared in various publications, including the LA Times Sunday Magazine, Parents, The Daily Breeze, The Good Men Project, Purdue University's Literary Journal, and 805 Living Magazine, where I was a monthly contributor for several years. When I'm not writing, I'm walking the beach with my husband and trying to keep my Monstera Deliciosa plant alive. The manuscript has had a sensitivity read by a member of the cross-dressing community. Thanks for your consideration. May I send you the full manuscript? Best regards, redacted. Thank you, Mai. Okay, so what was your take on that? So I really enjoyed this query. I absolutely love the title, When They Were Pretty. I think it really leans on the nostalgia that this book is going to have. It seems like this book is going to lean heavily towards memories of the past, things they longed for when they were younger, especially in the present day when life is not going as well as she thought it would be. So the genre of the book, you say literary fiction with elements of family saga. Family saga to me, usually when I hear the word family saga, I think multiple characters, possibly multiple generations. So far, it seems like the only protagonist here is Gemma. There's mention of her parents, Bill, and this new man in her life. But it's not giving me family saga vibes from this query. In fact, I'm getting more love story vibes, actually. Since you mentioned that she's getting closer to this new mysterious man, I'm curious to see if when you say family saga, do you mean maybe we'll be getting more of her parents' backstory, potentially, since you mentioned that the book is also set in World War II London. So if you could just elaborate a bit on that, I think that might help flesh out the query a bit. I think the comps Lucy Barton and Dutch House are great for examples with mature protagonists. I think the notebook is too big of a cultural phenomenon um, to use as a comp. I think actually a more accurate comp would be Goodbye Vitamin because it's actually about how Alzheimer's affects a parent-child relationship, which is what your novel is about, whereas The Notebook was more about how Alzheimer's affected a husband-wife relationship. So I think maybe Goodbye Vitamin might be a better comp for you. So in terms of the meat of the query here, it says here, as the two grow closer, processing their parents' decline together, a new secret emerges. I want to know what the secret is. Maybe maybe you don't want to spoil anything, but I think it's just too vague here. If you could add some more specificity, I think that would entice us a lot more. Currently, it's just a bit too vague for the stakes to feel high enough. I think there's still a way to hint at what the secret might be if you don't want to spoil us too much. But I think letting us know what the stakes is sort of lets us in onto the hook a bit more. Maybe the stakes involve Bill, her former lover. I'd love to hear more about him. Maybe it's something about this new man that she's seeing. 
maybe it has something to do with the sexual secrets and defiance of gender norms that you mentioned in the beginning. Either way, I think we just need a little bit more here about what that secret is. I love the last line of your plot there. She must decide whether to embrace her own imperfect life or cling to the myths she's believed in since childhood. I think a query always gets elevated when there's a stakes there where a protagonist has to choose between A or B and that they can never turn back. However, I think the stakes should be maybe just a little bit more specific and involve the possibility of losing something or someone. Currently, the options are she must decide to embrace her own imperfect life or the other option is cling to the myths she's believed in since childhood. While neither seems like a cakewalk, they're not particularly earth-shattering decisions either. Maybe it's because it sounds very vague and we're just not exactly sure what the secret is, what the childhood myth is. I'm just so curious to know, know more about it just so that the stakes can feel more elevated. If we had some insight into that, I think that might help a lot. Second of all, it's not evident to me why she can't do both. Like, I'm sure you could embrace an imperfect life and also cling to a myth you believed in since childhood. I think when it comes to stakes, if you pick option A, you're losing the opportunity to pick option B. And if you pick option B, then that means option A is no longer on the table. So it doesn't feel like these stakes, it doesn't feel like that kind of scenario here. Um, again, this might all be easily fixed if we just got more elaboration here on what the secret is. Just to give an example in my own query, the last sentence I had also established stakes. It went something like, desperate to keep their nail salon alive, the trans devise a series of ill-conceived plans with stalking, blackmailing, and gambling all on the table if that's what it takes. Debbie and Phil must choose. Do they keep their family intact or fight for their nail salon? So I feel like the stakes there are a little bit higher. If they fight so hard to keep their nail salon alive, they risk tearing their family apart but that they don't do anything, they risk losing their nail salon. So do you sort of see how the stakes are a bit higher there and a bit more do or die? I think that's just that's just what's needed here in this query. I love that you share your writing background with us. It definitely lends a lot of credibility to your writing skills. I love the line about keeping your monstera alive. I too am an obsessive plant mother, and so I love talking about my plant babies whenever I can. And lastly, I really appreciated the line about your book having had a sensitivity read. When writing about a community outside your own, I think it's a very responsible thing to do and shows that you put a lot of thought and care into writing about this community with accuracy. We just registered my youngest kid for kindergarten. I cannot believe it. One of the tricky things about my kids being in French immersion school and not having French as a language myself is I'm honestly worried about how I'm going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are honestly so lucky, though, to live in a city that's bilingual and we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So I know it's going to be easy for our kids to pick it up. Me, on the other hand, I am worried about me. I grew up somewhere where French class was not taken seriously, and now I have to make up the difference. And that's where Rosetta Stone comes in. As the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app, it really immerses you in the language you want to learn. Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion, which is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're honestly getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language, which is what everybody wants. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio, the audio from native speakers, and then give you feedback on how well you're pronunciating the words so you can really hone those pronunciations. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program because they have been an expert in the language learning field for 30 years and used by millions. Thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language training online. Of all the apps, Rosetta Stone uses the best speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of a native speaker for better feedback to improve. They have a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent, which is built into the program. As you practice speaking, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronunciating words. The other language learning apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. 
Think about the cost of a one month language course. Think about the cost of one hour private tutoring sessions. With Rosetta Stone, you enjoy lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. We have a special offer for you guys. That's 50% off. That's a lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off. This is a steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That We want you guys to go visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre or time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up for this 3,000-word evaluation. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 2nd of June, with the matchup emails going out on the 3rd of June. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader matchup page, and please spread the word the more writers we have signed up the better the matches will be thank you Mai and I have to agree about Goodbye Vitamin by Rachel Kong one of my absolute favorites I think it would make an excellent comp here okay Mai could you give us an indication of what was in those opening pages so we start with the main character she's visiting the nursing home where her mother is staying at when she arrives she sees a man at the front desk and she thinks this man could be Bill her former lover, or it could be her father. But of course she realizes it's neither because she hasn't seen Bill in 20 years and her father is dead. In the following pages, she visits her mother who has Alzheimer's disease. It's a very tender, touching, heartbreaking moment where she sees her mother and reminisces about who her mother used to be and what a vibrant and glamorous human being she used to be. She wore tons of fancy earrings and had bright red hair. There's a lot of interiority in these pages where she dwells on how interesting it is that she once used to want to be like her mother so badly. And now she hopes she is nothing like her mother considering the state that she's in. As she's visiting her mother, we get glimpses of her backstory about who Bill is and why their relationship ended. We learn a little bit more about who her mother used to be and what she was like before she ended up in the nursing home. It's clear in these pages that the main character is harboring lots of guilt for putting her mother in this nursing home. At one point, she accidentally says people who live there are like prisoners because alarm bells sound when they try to exit the doors. And so we get some of Gemma's background, too. We learn that she's single, childless and in her 50s, and she feels like a spinster. Awesome. Thank you. Okay, so what was your take on that? I really love these pages. I think the author did such an amazing job weaving in backstory while still staying in the present moment. We're still with the character in the nursing home, spending time with her mother, while also learning a little bit about her past too, but we're also not being pulled back too much. We're still staying very much in the present. In the second paragraph, we learn why she's in the nursing home. We learn that her mother is there, but I would actually just withhold that information that her mother is there. Just, I think when you say it later, a few pages down, I think it just adds a little bit of mystery there for the readers, just for a few minutes, just so that the readers are left suspended and wondering, what is she doing in this nursing home? Because later we spend the rest of the pages spending time with her mother. I think we can just, we can get rid of the initial mention that she's at the nursing home to visit her mother. In the query, you mentioned that the reason that her relationship with Bill had ended was because of his cross-dressing. But in these pages here, you say it's because he wasn't ready to buy a house or get married or have children. So I'm just wondering, which is it here? It's just something is not lining up between these pages and the query. If his cross-dressing actually did play a significant reason for the breakup, I think maybe it should be mentioned here. I think that would be a really great hook to have in the very first pages. I'm sure you don't want to elaborate on it right now in these first couple pages, but it'd be great to mention, especially if it's a core reason why they broke up. I just want to say the writer just writes so beautifully. I just want to share this line here. I thought it was just so evocative and descriptive. Once upon a time, my mother's hair would light up a room like fired copper. Now it's dull as a cloudy day. 
pulled back in an unflattering ponytail, a ridiculous pink scrunchie holding the stub in place, the style revealing both my mom's absence of a neck and her torn earlobes. And there's so many more descriptions like this of her mother and what she looks like and what she used to like and the jewelry she used to wear and how her ears have changed so much because she can no longer wear heavy earrings. And as a literary novel, the writing definitely shines. And so I, I want to applaud the, the writer here. I think you write very beautifully. I, overall, I just really enjoy these opening chapters. The writing is absolutely beautiful and very descriptive. It's a much quieter novel, I believe. Like the first few pages aren't very, there's not a lot that happens, but because the writing is so eloquent and beautiful, it carries these pages really well. And I think you've done an amazing job capturing all the emotions that come with having a parent who has Alzheimer's, all the guilt and frustration and grief and sadness. I think you've captured that really well here. It definitely feels like a first chapter, I have to say. I can tell you are trying to let the reader in on as much information as you can early on. In the first five pages, we learn that her father is dead, why her relationship didn't work out, that her mother has Alzheimer's, that she's got a brother and sister, that she's childless, single, 50s, and that she used to live with her mother before moving her into the nursing home. And so that's just a lot of information to pack in there. And I get the, I get why you want to do that. I also feel like I need to let readers know every single detail about my characters in the first few pages so that they're not confused and that they're set up properly. But I think I've learned to trust that readers don't need to know everything right off the bat. They can wait and that they, they can live without that information for several more pages. And so I would just maybe hold back some of that information and reveal it slowly later on in your book. Overall, I feel like this is a, a really, really strong couple of first pages, and I'm, I'm so excited to see where it goes. So coming back to Sunshine Nails, I want to talk a little bit about how you, my, live in Toronto. The novel is based in Toronto. We have listeners of the podcast that are Canadian. We have a lot of listeners and followers that are American. I want to talk a little bit about how this novel, in terms of us selling it, has become kind of a cross-border sensation because obviously my and I know that we ended up submitting the book and selling it in the U.S. to Simon & Schuster imprint named Atria, and they partnered with Simon & Schuster Canada. And they're going to be doing a Canadian edition and we're going to have our U.S. edition. You've had separate marketing meetings on the Canadian side and the U.S. side, which is so exciting. And so this book stayed so true to being Canadian, being based in Toronto, but has been able to really capture hearts all over the place. And can you talk a little bit about how that feels or your intentions even of like creating a book that can really cross borders? I am so relieved that this book is resonating really well with readers. I had a lot of insecurity about setting this novel in Toronto. I think in one of my writing courses that I took, one of my teachers suggested that I set this book in an American city like Chicago or New York, something that's Toronto adjacent, something set in the States so that American readers will be able to identify it with it better. And I almost felt a bit iffy about that. Like, why can't Toronto be the setting? Like, it's still a huge metropolitan city. It's not like it's in middle of nowhere. And so I, I wasn't familiar with what the marketing world was like in, in the publishing industry. So I wasn't sure if that was what people wanted. Did they want books set in New York? Is that is, is that going to help the book sell better? But fortunately, after hearing readers talk about this book, I think a lot of American readers are actually very interested to hear about the Vietnamese diaspora in Canada. I think there's a dearth of that those stories in the States or in North America in general. And so it's just nice to see what Canadian struggles are like versus American struggles. I know our cultures are very similar, but the struggles are different. And I think there's a, a hunger there to, to read stories set in Canada. All right. And we talked about the first line of the book, but now I want to talk about the last line of the book. So the last line is, so have you picked a color yet? Question mark. I think it was such a like neat and tidy way, obviously, to like close the novel, bring it back to obviously the nail salon, doing our nails. I mean, it also made me think of how this book, so I'm holding up the cover for everybody. Obviously, you're, you're listening. So the woman on the front cover has nail polish in her hand and we can kind of see it in her hand. And so this has been obviously a launch pad for the cover design. This has been a launch pad for the marketing campaign and Mai is working on designing some colors and choosing some names for some custom colors for some marketing to go with the book as well. So I want you to maybe talk a little bit about how the nail polish theme is kind of carrying from the book. Obviously, it's a launch pad, but also like through marketing and, and beyond. 
Well, when you write a book of set in a nail salon, the nail polish just you have to talk about the nail polish. Like I think one of the fun things about having parents that run a nail salon and working at a nail salon is looking at all the different fun names of nail polish colors. It's always something really wild, like a pink color is just not pink. It's like cha cha ching cherry or something like that. So I really wanted to weave in. It's a nail salon. It should be fun and witty and bright. And so I wanted to infuse those elements in there. And the that last line there. So have you picked a color yet? What if you've ever worked at a nail salon? You know that. One of the most frustrating things is waiting for your customer to choose a color because it can take ages. They take forever to choose a color. And there's a line in that book where Debbie she now understands why customers take so long to pick a nail polish color because it's almost like you're given a hundred versions of who you can be, and you just can't pick because there's so many different paths to go down. And so she now understands why when a customer stands in front of a wall of nail polish, they're just They're frozen. They don't know what to choose because it's almost like in the book where she just doesn't know what kind of person she wants to meet. Does she want to go down this path or that path or this path? So yeah, I sort of try to use nail polish as a metaphor for the different kinds of people we could be. Well, thank you so much for writing this incredible book, Sunshine Nails, which has been top of mind for me for the past year and a half, and I'm so excited everybody's going to be able to read it starting on July 4th. So thank you so much, my. And now I think it's time for Cece's query. None of that, please. I need to know what Mai's favorite nail polish color is. You got to pick Mai. <laughs> oh no, putting me on the spot. Now I'm the, now I'm going to be the one that takes ages to decide. It's like, what kind of what kind of person do you want to be, Mai? What kind What's of person do you want to be? Mai? <laughs> Right now, I want to be the type of person that wears coral colors. You you can see on my hands here for listeners. I'm wearing a coral color nail polish right now. That is amazing. My favorite nail polish. The color's name is Funny Bunny. So I love what you said about the commentary of the color names. <laughs> All right, let's dive into our last query letter. Dear Bianca, Cece, and Carly. Thank you for choosing my submission. I always look forward to being inspired by your informative podcast and social media posts. I loved the print viper, Bianca. What an interesting concept, being granted permission to give birth. I'm writing to you seeking representation for my 81,000 word dual POV commercial fiction romantic drama. Redacted possesses waves of suspense, sprinkles of humor, and a splash of fantasy. Fans of Nicholas's Sparks' Safe Haven may enjoy the pacing. A divorcee enters a budding relationship to the exasperation of her former husband. Terrified of losing her forever, her ex's actions could inadvertently put all their lives at risk. At 55 years of age, Lacey's adult existence mirrors a bad soap opera. Divorced and having overcome health issues, she is determined to end her pity party. After a pep talk with her BFF, Lacey enjoys a compatible conversation with a blind date, Kent. Leaving the bar, the sensation of being watched stops her dead in her tracks. A few minutes later, she hears someone called Wellesley her ex's name. Already spooked, a strange email regarding her attire sends her nerves skyrocketing. With her mind preoccupied, she narrowly avoids a car accident while she attempts to get home quickly. The following evening, Lacey and Kent go for a walk and see a truck with a logo parked on the other side of the bay. Convinced the vehicle belongs to her ex, they leave the area. Later that evening, horrific sounds and tremors resonate around the house. Tracking her movements, Wellesley is consumed by jealousy as he watches Lacey and her friends play in the water. Desperate to get close to his ex-wife, Wesley, I apologize, dismisses the golden rule regarding a local legend on the bay of their Algonquin district lake. Canadian, I live in Ontario with my husband and the ghost of our canine kid. Another commercial drama is in the final stages of editing. No animals were harmed while drafting this novel. If you're interested, I'd be thrilled to send you my complete manuscript and synopsis upon request. Thank you for your time and consideration. This is clocking in at 357 words. Redacted. Amazing, Cece. Thank you. And thank you to our listeners for including the word count for us. Okay, Cece, what was your take on that? I will say that first, I'm so sorry for, for mispronouncing your protagonist's name, one of your protagonists. I have nothing to blame but the fact that I did not sleep last night. I've reviewed this before. So we are obviously open to resubmissions and sometimes we include those because it's important to share um, critiques with the writer about, you know, what did you do differently this time? How did I feel about it this time? So I do want to acknowledge that. First, shout out to the Print Viper because it really is fantastic. If you haven't listened to it yet, go to Audible, go listen to it. 
The title is redacted, but the writer did share it with me. I just want to say this is the title for a thriller. It's not just the title. The way you're describing your story, it sounds like a thriller. I said the same thing last time, and it's still true. I could see that you changed um, certain lines, especially a line that I mentioned that gave me thriller vibes. But the whole thing is giving me thriller vibes. There's a guy watching a woman, right? Like she feels the unease, the angst of being watched. Like she's scared. And then she moves around to avoid him. And he does this dangerous thing. Like this reads like a thriller. When I think of romantic drama, I think of In Five Years, Rebecca Surly. I think of The Light We Lost, Jill Santopolo. You might be writing a thriller and you don't even know it. Or, or I am way off, which of course could happen, but the query letter is not promising me a romantic drama. I think we need comps. Like I know we have Nicholas Sparks' Safe Haven, but that's totally different from what I read. So I would just find two comps that really work for your book. First, you need to decide what genre this is. That's the most important part. Maybe it's a blend. It could be that too. I do think that there's a plausibility issue with her knowing that she's being watched by her ex. It's the sensation of being watched as she leaves the bar. It's the day that she sees the truck parked. I'm not like, why does she, how does she know it's him? Usually when a protagonist can anticipate something solely based on intuition and they're right, that's a tension leak because it doesn't allow the reader to also anticipate it because the reader isn't having that intuition. And so the reader isn't playing along with the protagonist to solve the puzzle. And so that usually creates a sense of passiveness, which can create detachment from the story. So I would change that. There are a lot of beats in your plot paragraph, so it's closer to a synopsis. So I would just condense it. You don't need all these beats. I absolutely loved your author paragraph. The ghost of our canine kid made me not cry, not quite that far, but, you know, tugged at my heartstrings. Um, and I love the line about no animals were harmed while drafting the novel. Thank you for sharing. Thank you, Cece. Okay, let's talk about what was in those opening pages and how they varied from the first ones. This is totally different, totally different pages. We are like starting from scratch. Um, I want to begin by saying that the writer did an excellent job. This is the POV that you should be starting from, not the previous one. So excellent job. We have two pages of a prelude. If you listen to my interview with Jenny Jackson, you know a prelude is just a fancy word for a prologue. It's still a prologue. That is fine. The prologue here works. And then we have three pages of an opening chapter. So in the prelude, she is arriving home. She being Lacey, the protagonist. The dogs are acting a little bit weird. She doesn't know why. Then she understands why there's a dead body in her backyard. And then dun, dun, dun. Chapter one, it's three pages of her outside a building where she has to go inside for a blind date. And we have lots of information on her friend, Jessica, who set this up, the weather, her appearance, the cars around. She's wondering if her ex is around. She's wondering if her blind date is already inside the building. And finally, she goes in. But we don't see her with the date. We just see her anticipation and then walking in. All right. So what was your take on all of that? The prologue is the right place to start. I like it. It works. It creates a sensation of, again, dead body. But to my previous point, are you sure you are writing a romantic drama? You're, you have a prologue where people find a dead body. That's typically thriller. I genuinely think that you might not know the genre you're writing in, which is totally normal, by the way. And I don't mean to push a genre onto you, right? Like this is not the genre you want to write. That's fine. I might be reading it wrong, but it really sounds like a thrill. I would tighten it, tighten it, compress it, make it one page and not two. And also right now, when she finds the dead body, we get zero emotionality. We get all narration. A body lays motionless on the grass in an awkward twisted position about two meters from the water. And then more sentences on exactly something a camera could capture. We don't get her panic first, her shock first. And we absolutely, for the sake of emotional calibration, need to get her reaction first because we're in her head. Unless you don't want us to be in her head because she would think, oh my God, it's so-and-so, right? And we don't, we don't want us to know who that so-and-so is. So maybe the prologue could be from the point of view of the dogs. That's an idea. Because the dogs wouldn't know who the body is. Or maybe the dogs would know, but maybe the dogs wouldn't use their name. I don't know. But if it's about the mystery, you have to find a way around it. Because you can't have a person finding a dead body and not have their emotionality. It's just not believable. For chapter one, similar note to tightening. Um, right now, she's outside the building thinking about going inside. We're getting so much great detail on all these things. And you're doing it really well. I kept highlighting lines that told me so much about the protagonist in such an interesting, fresh, original way. I did highlight them for you. And please keep all these lines, but you can tighten. 
we do not need as much as we're getting about her appearance, her age, her moment in life. You can keep us a little bit more curious, right? Like be more seductive in your writing. Also, her interiority should be focused on the blind date with specificity. So for example, I get that it's a blind date, but has she seen a picture? If not, what are her, her things she's worried about? Maybe she's like, oh my gosh, I really need him to have a great smile. You know, it's non-negotiable for me. What if he doesn't have a great smile? Does she have an exit plan? Or maybe she's worried about what he thinks about her appearance as well. Or maybe she's like, okay, I don't know anything about him. Don't know what he looks like, but I know he's a lawyer. So maybe he's a know-it-all. And then she'd think back to that other date she went on with a lawyer and that was a disaster. You just need specificity of what she is anticipating because a huge part of having a protagonist going into a date, into something new, into an adventure is what exactly she is anticipating in a way that builds character, but also kind of sets up the, the, the scene for us. Because now when she walks in, if I know the thing about the smile, for example, I'm now worried that he might not have a great smile. So I'm rooting for her to find a guy with a great smile. And I want to be surprised, right? So without expectations, I can't be surprised. And she has zero expectations on the date, other than a line about her thinking that he'll stand her up. With her luck, he would stand her up. And I didn't get much like, has this happened before? Is this her anxiety? Like, I guess I wanted more on that too. So tighten it. You can have the scene where she's outside three quarters of a page and then have her walk inside, make it more about the date, less about the setting. The setting can come later. You can save all these great lines and please do keep the amazing insights. Thank you so much, Cece. My thank you so much for joining us. It was wonderful to have you as our inaugural author for our new format. And yeah, for our listeners, Sunshine Nails, we're going to link to it on our bookshop.org affiliate page. Get that, support my, support the podcast and support indie bookstores at the same time. Thanks so much for having me, guys. This was so much fun. Well, we look forward to having you back in the future. We're so excited for the success to come of Sunshine Nails. there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. Did you know that 70% of all books are sold online via e-commerce? If you're an author wondering how you can get some of that market share, this is for you. Hi, I'm your co-host Carly Waters and I'm here to tell you how writers can work on their author brand to build an audience and convert those followers into book buyers. Do you ever wonder why so many authors publish their books and later say they didn't sell as many copies as they wanted? It happens over and over and it's all over social media. Authors really think it's a them problem, but not always. They really just weren't shown the way. And I don't want you guys to launch a book and show up at book events and have two people in the chairs. I have helped clients launch books to the bestseller list for over 15 years. I have now built a six module, 10 hour course with all my knowledge. And that will give you the craft and book business information that you won't find anywhere else. And there's an app. Over 100 of you have already joined my new course. And writer Siobhan Moore said, I'm halfway through the course and grieving that I didn't have this information sooner. There's really nowhere else to find it worth every penny. Thank you, Siobhan. If you want all that info and everything that will change the course of your writing career, go to carlywaters.com course to learn more and use discount code POD15 for the month of April at checkout. That's POD, P-O-D 15 at checkout over at carlywaters.com course. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on.